Romans, the second chapter. We, we began the second chapter last week, and I went back through my notes, and I know it was kind of broken up because of the time that we were out last spring and, and for a few weeks, and, and then the Lord impressed us with, with some other sermons during those times, and but uh, kind of added them up. Just I was curious that we spent 22 sermons in the first chapter of Romans. And I don't say that in any other way other than to say that the Lord is good with the richness of His Word. And I I don't think we'll be spending near that time in chapter 2. I don't know. If we, if we spend 20 weeks in every chapter, it'll be eight years before we get through this probably. I'm not sure. But, but we want to go with the Lord's timing and to... Um, expound as the Lord was have us to, to cross-reference, to to get all that we need from these passages because the book of Romans is, is foundational to our faith. The, the first three chapters, as we talked about as we was going through the first chapter, is laying out, you know, Paul is setting a precedence here. There is none righteous, no, not one. Whether Gentile, whether Jew, whether moral person, There is none good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul is laying that down in those first three chapters. And then he will bring the good news of of redemption uh, and expound upon that. So this morning, Romans second chapter, we're going to read the first 11 verses. We will be talking in particular today of verse 4. And I'll be reading today from the New King James Version, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. And I'm going to pause just for a moment, and you'd have to go back and see what he had just said in chapter 1 to, to know what the therefore is there for. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And again, Paul knew his audience. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And I'll pause again. And we know when we have that word practice in Scripture, that means an ongoing day-to-day, that's the lifestyle. No remorse, no conviction, no turn from sin. This is what they do day in and day out. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. And we would just ask what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And who we are not, make us. For Christ's sake and in His name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, today I'm going to start with just a simple question. Is God good? Yes. We, we end almost every service by that little phrase, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. He is good. And now let me read 
a few passages that talk about the goodness of God. The, the Bible is replete with, with verses that expound upon His goodness. And here in Exodus 34, verse 6, this is, this is Moses. You'll know the story. This is, he's, he's standing there. He has the second set of tablets in his hand and God is there with him. And this is what the Lord's, uh, Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed by him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And, and perhaps one of my favorite songs for the, for the, Church for the children of God, Psalms 107, the first two verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Child of God, born again believer, the redeemed of the Lord, we are to speak with thanksgiving of His goodness and His mercy. Let us not be silent. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those who have been redeemed from the hand of the enemy. How about Psalms 145, verses 5 through 9. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness. And I shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. Let's stay in Psalms. Psalms 33 verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of God. Psalms 34, verse 8. Read it with me if you would. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. And one, uh, Nahum, the first chapter, verse 7. Oh, you want to read this one too? This is a good one. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. That's a good verse if you're going through a trial or tribulation. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And now just one more from Mark, the 10th chapter, verse 18. This is where the young rich man has come to Christ and and he, he called Jesus good teacher. And Jesus replied with this in Mark 10, 18. So Jesus said to him, the rich young man, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. So is God good? Yes. Yes. And anyone with a concordance or a Bible program can do a, a uh, search for a particular word in the Bible and can come up with a list of, of verses that, that will have that word in there. And many preachers, I have been myself, are notorious for plucking verses are portions of verses from Scripture so that they will have a biblical reference for a point that they are trying to make. Now, is that a dangerous thing? It can be. It can be. It can be if the verse is taken out of its original context and meaning as to make a passage of Scripture say something that it is not saying. And you may say, well, preacher, why are you bringing this up? I bring it up because in my study this week, I came across two preachers in comments that they made about Romans 2, verse 4. And let's put that up just for a moment. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And both these preachers, uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention names. Uh, you can talk to me after the service if you'd like, and perhaps we can talk about it. 
But both preachers used a portion of Romans 2.4 to make a point that agrees with their easy believism preaching. One preacher made a Facebook post explaining his evangelistic method. Now listen, this is a post from this preacher. Romans 2.4, leave that up there. Romans 2.4, the goodness of God leads to repentance. That portion. The goodness of God leads to repentance. Preaching God's goodness brings more repentance and faith than guilt. Preaching God's goodness brings more to repentance and faith than guilt. What's this preacher saying? He is in essence saying, downplay sin and the threat of judgment. That's, that's what he's saying. Make the gospel more appealing by only emphasizing God is love and God is good. And yes, we talk about those things, but not to the neglect of not talking about sin and judgment. You know, he's saying, don't talk about sin and God's wrath toward the unrepentant. Now, is that what the Apostle Paul is saying so far in the book of Romans? No. Nowhere near is that what Paul is saying. Yet, they have plucked that portion of Scripture out to make it say what they wanted. They're saying just the opposite of what the Apostle Paul was saying. Another preacher, who's probably every book goes to number one on the Christian bestseller list for several years now, Use Romans 2.4 to defend his feel-good messages. Quote, Listen, don't dangle people over the fires of hell. Listen, that doesn't draw people to God. They know what kind of life they live. They know how bad they've lived. What you've got to do is talk about the goodness of God. Listen. It's the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. End quote. Do people really know how bad they are? No. No. No, they don't. Proverbs 21 verse 2. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Do you remember the last... Here, I'm going to do it. The last little portion of the last verse of in the book of Judges. What did it say? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Do people really know how sinful they are? No. Without the truth of God's Word, they won't know the depths of their sin. We need the Word of God. We need every word that is found within, not skipping over. The Apostle Paul said this. Let's go to Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And we'll be talking about this a little bit later in the second chapter when when Paul is addressing the Jews and the law. Because they were... Paul, everything he said... Chapter 1, everything he's saying, that doesn't apply to us because we have the law. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Uh, On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. He's talking of Ten Commandments here. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. What's he saying? I wouldn't have known my sin unless the law had told me, the Word of God had told me. How would I know? In Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, We are no longer under a tutor, but we're under Christ and His Word and His commands not to nullify the law because Christ came to fulfill the law. He didn't nullify it. He fulfilled it. 
Do people need to be told of their sin? Yes. People need to be told the truth of God's wrath. They need to be told to flee the wrath of God that is coming upon, what Paul say, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We must not downplay the penalty for sin. To try and do that with a portion of Romans 2 verse 4 is unconscionable in my eyes. Romans, the first three chapters, is probably the greatest discourse in Scripture telling us of man's depravity. Probably nowhere in Scripture will you find a collection of verses where Paul is hammering, making sure that everyone knows no one is exempt, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned, none seek after Him. It tells us of the depths of our sin and of the universal nature of sin and the justice of God's wrath against sin. I've told you often that, you know, because sometimes people ask me, well, who do you listen to? Who, what preachers do you listen to? And, and, and you know, my, my short list is John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg, and, and then reading uh, the old timers. Uh, we're going to have a quote from A.W. Pink and uh, some others today. But here, here I want to read John MacArthur's evangelistic method. Quote, the biblical order in any gospel presentation is always first the warning of danger and then the way of escape. First, the judgment on sin and then the means of pardon. First, the message of condemnation and then the offer of forgiveness. First, the bad news of guilt and then the good news of grace. The whole message and purpose of the loving, redeeming grace of God offering eternal life through Jesus Christ rests upon the reality of man's universal guilt of abandoning God and thereby being under His sentence of eternal condemnation and death. Consistent with that approach, the main body of Romans begins with chapter 1, verse 18, a clear affirmation of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. End quote. Now there's your evangelistic method. It seems Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, the, the way of the master, if any of you ever listened to any of those or read any of those, that's, that's their approach. First, you have to point out sin, and they use that question. So you think you're a good person? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good person. You think you go to heaven? Well, yeah, I think so. I think so. And then they start asking a question: Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lusted? Just in your mind, even. And and people, if they're if they're honest, they're going to have to say yes to these questions. And then then they will say after they have admitted. Well, by your own admission, you're a sinner. And what does Scripture say about sinners? And then you share the good news. You see, our guilt and the justice of God's wrath provide the all-important context of Romans 2-4. It does. Let, let, let's read Romans 2, verses 2-5 through 5 one more time. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against all who practice such things. And again, take the whole of everything that Paul has said so far. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, in other words, your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, in the full context of Paul's writing, we see clearly what he means by God's goodness. 
It is the riches of his goodness. It is the riches of his kindness, the riches of his forbearance, his tolerance, and the riches of his long-suffering, his patience. And that verse 2 and 3 explains how God demonstrates that tolerance and patience by withholding the wrath that we deserve. That's what it's talking about. In verse 4, we're reminded not to despise. That, that means not to think lightly, not to belittle the riches, the fullness the, uh, and of His goodness, His kindness, His tolerance and patience. God's goodness, His kindness is the reality that the sinner has not yet experienced the full measure of God's judgment and wrath. If we would have all gotten what we deserve at the first moment, the first time we sinned, we'd have been gone. If we got what we deserved at that moment. Do you understand that? But God is patient. God is kind. God is good. He's long-suffering. And everyone on the face of this planet, saint and sinner alike, in some degree, experience the goodness and kindness of God. And many will refer to this as common grace. Common grace. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. Let's read verses 43 through 45. This is Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He, the Father in heaven, makes His Son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Common grace. Common grace upon the good and just as well as on the evil and unjust. That is God's goodness. That is His kindness. Forbearance. Forbearance is God's tolerance. God holds back His anger. He withholds the justice that sinners deserves. Yeah, God is tolerant. How often have we heard that word in this day and age? Well, you're not being very tolerant of me and my lifestyle. Which if somebody really wants to get in my face over some things, you just very calmly and politely turn it back. Well, you're not being very tolerant of my Bible and my Christian walk either. See, they they don't see it goes both ways. But this I know, God hates sin, doesn't He? Yes, yes. In in case you're in doubt about that, let me read a couple verses. Psalms chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Did you get that? I didn't make that up. This is the Lord in His Word. You, God, hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. To those who speak falsehood. Isn't that what Paul has been saying? Put that... Romans 1 verse 18 up there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The same message from the psalmist, the same message that Paul is preaching. Let's let's go back into Psalms uh, chapter 11 verses 4 through 7. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. Let me pause there for a moment. Does He? Yes, He does. Does He send trials along our way to test us? 
Uh, not that he needs to know. He already knows. But that so that we might know, yet not I, but Christ in me. The Lord tests the righteous, but the, now listen, listen, but, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The Lord, God, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Ah, but for the unrighteous, what do they have in store? Unless by a miracle of grace, they have in store wrath. Psalm 7, verses 10 through 13. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge. Amen? Amen. He is just. He, everyone who dies, and everyone will, it's appointed to man once to die. You're going to die. And then, judgment. And God will deal righteously and rightly with every person who dies. At, at every funeral I have done, some of the people I really don't know, but I'm doing it for, for a family of someone that I may have known, uh, that, that a loved one has passed, and I don't know the person who died, but I can stand before those people and say that the Lord will deal rightly. Rest assured that God is good and He will deal rightly and just with, with your loved one as they stand before Him. And I can say that with all confidence. And He will. God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. What do these two preachers do with these verses? Have they just torn those pages out? And God is angry with the wicked every day. Let me pause again. But yet He is patient. He is tolerant. He is long-suffering. And aren't you thankful? Man, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. We should all be thankful that, that He was tolerant and patient with us until that moment that He shone light into darkness and drew us to Himself. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. Child of God, we should have compassion for the lost. We should be bold enough to tell them of their sin and the wrath of God is coming because God has the bow Bent, the arrow is there. It's ready to be released. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. Oh, ready for judgment. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Oh, but for many, he is patient and tolerant, not yet releasing his wrath. I think so much of the modern church has lost the reality of God's wrath. They've disregarded His hatred for sin. Have we forgotten Hebrews 10 verse 31? Put it up. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jonathan Edwards, it is a Fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. A terrifying thing. God hates sin, but yet tolerates the sinner. Holding back His wrath and instead allows the rain to fall, blessings to fall upon all people. Just the blessing of another breath we take for granted. It's a mercy of the Lord. 
long-suffering. God withholds His wrath for a long time. He is patient. How about Romans 9, verse 22? We'll get there one of these days. Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering, much patience, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Oh, it's it's rhetorical because He is. He is. He is patient. He is. And one day He will show His wrath. And He does, even in this life we live, He will allow things to happen that will cause people to say, why did God let that happen? Whether it be a tsunami that wipes out a bunch of people, whether it be a tornado that would go through, whether it be a horrific car crash, a bunch of people involved and lives lost. Why why would God allow such a thing to happen? God is good. For for everyone who dies in any circumstance, any circumstance, it is a blessing that they had life up till that moment. Understand that. Because we're all going to go someday. And so don't ever think that God is not good because of disasters that happen. For many, it's a wake-up call that will cause many people to face their mortality and to perhaps, perhaps, be open to hearing the Gospel. Sinners live Sinners prosper, sinners enjoy life, and they are blessed in life with temporal blessings, earthly blessings, but all someday will come to justice. There's no escape, and there's no excuse. Paul said several times, you are without excuse, O man. The wages of sin is death, The gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. We should all have been dead after one sin, but God is kind, patient, and long-suffering. Now, A.W. Pink. Uh, This was from his book that he wrote, I think it said 1930, The Attributes of God. Uh, Many of you have this and have read it. And and this is in talking of the goodness of God. Uh, Listen, A.W. Pink, quote, How wondrous God's patience is with the world. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine divine law is trampled underfoot and God Himself openly despised. It is truly amazing that He doesn't instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy Him. Why does he not suddenly cut off the haughty infidel and blatant blasphemer as he did Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not cause the earth to open up and devour the persecutors of his people so that like Dothan and Abiram, they should go down alive into the pit? And what about apostate Christendom? In other words, what he is saying there, the traitorous church the apostate Christendom, where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ. He wrote this in 1930. Imagine if he could see the abomination that's going on today. And what about the apostate Christendom, the traitor's church, where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ. Why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Have you ever asked that question yourself? Some of the things you see? Pink says, only one answer is possible. Because God bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. End quote. See, to repent, 
to believe the gospel, to come to Christ for forgiveness, is to see that God is by nature a Savior who is good. But men despise God's goodness. Why do you despise the goodness? And they do. They despise His goodness. They abuse His kindness. See, sinners have this kind of vague hope of exemption, don't they? Have you talked to anybody? They have this this, this hope of exemption. Well, I'll be okay. God, He won't send me to hell. Really. So, so what Bible are you reading? Or they'll read and listen to the list of sins from Romans 1. and Well, I'm not that bad. I, I don't do those things. I'm okay. Uh, those things won't happen to me. I'm basically a good person. And they sort of openly claim exemption from judgment when nothing could be further from the truth. Another writer put it this way, and I, I didn't, I, I didn't write the name down. And I don't remember who I got this from, but uh, it, he said, "The Jews took God's goodness for granted. People take it for granted today. The truth which they know in the Scripture, in those places where the Scripture has gone, they take love and friendship and beauty and warmth and emotions and food." and drink, and clothing, and nature, and children, and pleasure for granted. They live in mercy. They live in the kindness of God, blessing them and withholding judgment. They live there so long and and are so comfortable that they get used to grace and think they deserve it. They are so used to mercy so used to sinning and seemingly getting away with it without instant punishment that when justice does come, they think it's injustice. They're offended if God is not merciful because they don't understand what they actually deserve. End quote. And I thought that was very good. That, that, that explains it pretty good. See, what they don't see is what's in verse 5. That as long as they continue in a stubborn, unrepentant way, there's an accumulation of wrath going on. Storing up, treasuring up wrath. There's an accumulation of wrath going on. All their sin is accumulating, Revelations will say, in the books. And we will be judged out of the books. For every sin, no sin left out. Now for the child of God, the born-again believer, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But for the sinner, nothing but condemnation. You see, it is impossible to preach the goodness of God without talking about sin and judgment because its very meaning is bound up in those terms. When we see our sinfulness and rebellion against God and when we see our hypocrisy in condemning others for committing the same wrath-deserving sins, then we can also marvel at God's goodness in patiently and tolerantly withholding the wrath which we deserve. That is what leads us to repentance. And it's entirely consistent with what Paul taught elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 7. I want to read just verse 1 to, to get a kind of a context here, and we're going to drop down. Here, here's, here's Paul. He's, he's talking about forsaking sin and perfecting holiness. Uh, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, that's, that's Paul's message. And then let's, let's drop down. Uh, verse 9 and 10. Now listen. Everybody listening one more time, say amen. Stay with me now. This is Paul. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. Now the ESV 
says, not because you were grieved. The NESB says, not that you were made sorrowful. Now rejoice, not not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to what? Repentance. What were they sorry for? Their sins. Their sins. Being brought guilty before the truth of God's Word. And that brought on a godly sorrow that led to repentance. That's true repentance. That's not repeating some little prayer or signing a card or going through a confirmation and and getting stamped. You're okay. This is true repentance. Now rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. So there's a multitude of people. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that word sorry. There's a lot of people who say sorry. Your kids, when they get caught, sorry, sorry, sorry. But are they truly sorry? Because sorry is just a word. It's what you do after the sorry that lets your parents and lets others know that you're truly sorry. And here, Paul talks about it. For godly sorrow produces repentance. And that's what Romans 2, 4 is all about. Godly sorrow over sin. See, God may not bring His wrath soon, but He will bring His wrath finally. Finally. Sinners must face this truth that if the goodness of God toward you is not leading you to repentance, then drop by drop, sin by sin, you're filling up the reservoir of God's patience until someday the dam breaks and you drown in the flood of your own sin. Good illustration, isn't it? If the goodness of God toward you is not leading you to pretend to repentance, then drop by drop, sin by sin, you're filling up the reservoir of God's patience until someday the dam breaks and you drown in the flood of your own sin, in the flood of judgment. But praise the Lord, there's an alternative. <laughs> praise the Lord. You come to Christ. You come to the cross. By faith, believing and receiving, you embrace the Savior who died. Believing and repenting of your sins, God offers forgiveness of sin, wipes the slate clean, and remembers your sins no more. See, that's a good alternative, isn't it? That's good news. Why would anybody reject Such good news. Because they love darkness rather than light. That's what Jesus said. Listen to this. This this is Psalms 86, verse 5. Oh, here's your great verse. Psalms 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good. Amen? Good. And ready to, what? Forgive. And abundant in mercy to all those who call upon Him. See, there's the good news. There's the good news. But for the Lord is good. He's ready to forgive. He's abundant in mercy to all who call upon Him. That's the alternative. Call upon the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you through the provision of Christ on your behalf at the cross. See, that's the rescue for sinners. That's the rescue from the wrath of God in judgment. Call upon the Lord. Jesus came to this earth that He created. Think about that. The Creator of all things came to this tiny speck of dust in the vast universe that He created. He came to that little speck of dust to live as a man. To set an example. 
and to come according to the will of the Father to go to the cross to pay the penalty for all who would believe and come to Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sing it again. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Jesus came giving Himself as a ransom for sinners by dying upon the cross as payment, as propitiation for sin for all who would believe. And then here's the question, do you believe? Do you believe? Because the the answer to that very simple question will be the difference in your eternal destination. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and in three days He rose again so that we would have a living hope that when we die, we too shall rise and to be with Him? Because you see, we... Everyone on the face of this planet. You know, I talked about the Jews, uh, I believe it was last week or, or sometime in the last few weeks, how the Jews back in, in Christ's day, and perhaps they still do even today, categorize all people on the face of this planet into two groups, Jews and non-Jews. That's all there is. But in reality, there's only two groups, believers in Christ and unbelievers facing wrath. That's the two categories. You're in one or the other. There is no other category. You're in one of those. John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son, in Christ, has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Treasuring up, storing up wrath. Everlasting life to the believer, the wrath of God for the unbeliever. There's only two things. There's only two things. Blessed are those who have believed. Let's read from John, the third chapter, verses we read perhaps almost every Sunday, but all let's read them again. John 3, verses 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the, that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see... A believer or an unbeliever. That's all there is. And as an unbeliever, you're under even now condemnation and the wrath of God till such time as mercy comes and you receive Christ. Call upon Him. For the Lord is good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon Him. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. You see, by the time you get over to to chapter 10 in Romans, Paul is telling the good news. He's telling the good news that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And as I say quite often, saved from what? The wrath of God. That's what you'll be saved from. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Let me pause there again. He keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. You can't hide behind your Jewishness. 
You can't, you can't, you can't. You can't hide behind, oh, I'm a good person. You, oh, you can try, but you can't, you can't. It will be revealed someday. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all, to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For by grace we are saved through faith. Call upon the Lord, believing the gospel, confessing our sins, receiving Christ. One more verse, John 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Oh, don't you want to be in that number? Don't you want to be in that number? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks. Thanks for the truth of Your Word. And thanks that You are good. That You are patient. That, that You love us and sent Your Son to die on the cross that we might have a way to You. And Father, should there be one under the hearing of this sermon who is yet lost, and perhaps even if, as they have listened, they have, they're just sitting there wrestling with it. No, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. Lord, make it real to them. They're in one of the two categories we talked about. Either a believer under Your grace or an unbeliever under Your wrath. And Lord, You're the only one that can make that real to them. And it becomes real as you shine light into a dark place. It becomes real to them when you show them your holiness. And in light of your holiness, Saul, it's like the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road when you shone light upon him. When your holiness, your light shines, we have no other recourse than to fall before you. And Lord, grant repentance. Grant them faith to believe. Lord, hear their cries of repentance. Forgive them. Oh, place within them Your Holy Spirit that they might know without a shadow of a doubt that they are saved. So Lord, perform perform a miracle of mercy that only You can do. And Father, for those of us who are born again, the redeemed, oh, let us not be silent. Let us speak for You Your words of truth. Because Your Word is life. So help us, Father, as we live day to day. Help us to live in Your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.